Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Twin Bills, the Red Sox podcast from the sports department of the Providence Journal, featuring Red Sox beat writer Bill Koch, along with sports editor Bill Corey. Now, Twin Bills. Hello and welcome to this week's Twin Bills Red Sox podcast. This is Bill Corey, the sports editor at the Providence Journal. With me is Red Sox writer Bill Koch. Bill, uh, it's April 16th, but it feels more like March 1st out there or maybe February 25th or something. How about January 3rd? It's cold, <laughs> sleeting, there's snow in parts of Rhode Island. Uh, it is it is not baseball weather, and as we are recording this on a uh, on an early Friday afternoon with the Red Sox scheduled to play tonight, there's clearly some uh, doubt as to whether they're going to actually get this game in. Yeah, uh, I have my questions, Bill Corey. Uh, I'm happy to be sitting here in a nice warm studio here in our downtown offices with you. Uh, the member of the Providence Journal sports staff that you don't want to be today would be one Eric Rube, who is going to be down in Narragansett watching high school football tonight. Ooh, so, bundle uh, up. That's yeah. going to be a tough one. Uh, unless, they, uh, unless they swing open the doors of the press box there and invite everybody in, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a, a rough cover. But, uh, but uh, you're right. It's better to be inside than outside today. Not exactly baseball weather. But uh, as we look at the Red Sox through these first uh, 13 games of the season here, yep. uh, I have to say that they have been an exciting and great take. They won. Uh, they they lose three. They win nine in a row. Mm. They drop their last game in um, in Minnesota uh, yesterday, and even that that uh, it came down to the wire. There, they lost it in, in the ninth inning. So, uh, Bill, let's touch upon why this baseball team is so much better than they were a year ago, and just <laughs> and just as a right. just as a baseball fan, they are uh, they, they're really a great take. I think just to, just to watch them play. Well, it would have been harder for them to be worse than they were a year ago. That's true. Uh, we, because... we, we always uh, have to remind ourselves of that caveat that there was really nowhere to go but up. That, that this is actual baseball being played, and that last year was something else. <laughs> was... Yes. Yeah. I mean, it really, it was brutal to watch every night. We, we've recapped that, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm close to being able to move on. I'm not quite there yet, <laughs> but I'm close. It's, it's kind of like a damaging breakup where I'm considering dating again. Right. But I'm yeah, not you don't want to get in. You don't want to jump in too soon. I'm not quite there yet, but I, but I know it's coming. <laughs> um, you know, right after that breakup happens, you think, oh, man, I'm going to be single for the rest of my life. It's all over. <laughs> Uh, you know, I am past that point with the Red Sox. I, I am to the point where I can see a future. Um, you know, and as I wrote for the journal uh, in in uh, Friday's editions, I, I think there are four major reasons why, um, and, and we're going to go over those in the podcast. I, I think they'll build just at the top of the list, I think, has to be your starting pitching. I, I just think mm. that there were too many nights in 2020, and, and the position players are too professional to say this. But there were just too many nights where games were over early. Yeah, they were right. finished. You know, you're down three nothing, four nothing in the first two innings. Um, you know, you you know the guys written on the lineup card just aren't major league quality. Uh, you know, they're not guys who are good enough to go out there and consistently get outs 
um, against good lineups. And, and I think if you're a position player, you're looking at that, and it's only natural to get beaten down over the course of time. And, and I think that happened very early for the Red Sox last year. I, I think mentally that was always going to be a difficult year in the middle of COVID and empty ballparks and, and whatever else. It was the absolute worst time to start slow. Um, resilience was going to be at a very low ebb. Um, you know, and so I, I think pitching staff being what it is, um, you know, right now they sit, they have a three five six ERA through 13 games, um, and they have the best record in the American League. Uh, there have been four other times recently where they've had a sub three seven five ERA through 13 games. Wow. The last four World Series years. <laughs> oh, 04, wow. 07, 13, and 18. So... It's a great pattern. You know, who, who knows if it's going to hold up? But yeah, absolutely. Pitching means everything. Uh, and uh, I think right at the top of that list has been Nate Evaldi, who uh, I, I saw a stat on, on uh, the game broadcast. I think it was something like his ERA going back to last August sometime was sub two. Uh, and, and even now he's, he's right around two. He's, he's won two games. He's been he's really been the ace of the staff, obviously. You know, everyone is keyed on Erod uh, having come back from his his struggles last year, and he's been okay. And he's been he's been good. I shouldn't say just okay. He's been good, but Ivaldi has just been, you know, he's been truly the ace. Obviously, we, we say this every week. You know, we'll see if he if Ivaldi can get through a full season or close to a full season. But always the question, so, right? So far, his his uh, he has presented very very well. And you're right. You know, starting pitching really is the key. You get out to a uh, to an early lead, or at least if if your pitcher um, keeps you in the game, you know it's a whole different ball game when you have batters who can, uh, you, you know, they're confident that they're going to score a couple of runs. But if you're down five to two or five to or you know six to one after four three or four innings, that's right. You know, it, it's just too too steep a hill to climb as we saw last season yeah, one nothing two to one three to one those are manageable you can get those back in one swing oh. those don't feel like a big heavy lift when you look up on the scoreboard and you see five to nothing yeah six to nothing uh as an offense you're thinking how many base runners is that right how many good at bats is that that we'll need to string together just to get back within contact sure um you know and of all the you you mentioned Three starts, uh, 12 hits in 17 and third innings. I don't think uh, the caliber of pitching has ever been the issue with Evaldi. It's his health. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he was on the injured list in 2019, the year after they won the World Series. He was on the injured list in 2020 um, with a calf strain. Uh, he's been on the injured list five times in the previous five seasons. Um, you know, when he's been on the mound, He's been good. Unfortunately, it's it's been too infrequent over the course of his career. But he's certainly a guy who can go out there and get outs for you. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I you brought up Rodriguez, and and I think, I think the best thing you could say about Eduardo Rodriguez right now is that he looks normal. Hmm. He looks kind of like himself. And through most of 2018 and through all of 2019, that guy himself was a pretty darn good pitcher. And, and if he's approaching yep. that, they're they're in very good shape, and he's in very good shape personally. Yeah, if you got him and and Evaldi, uh, operating on that level at the top of the staff, uh, you know, Pavetta has been has been pretty good for them. Uh, Matt Barnes has been lights out in the bullpen uh, in his uh, in his I think he's pitched seven innings so far. Adam Ottavino, not so much. Uh, a little uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, not uh, great. Just uh, some some red flags going up there again. You know, with we're 13 games in, uh, so we'll see. But 
yeah, I thought that I thought that he would be uh, a little bit. Uh, a little bit more of a force in the, toward the back end of that pen. The uh, the the bullpen is interesting to me. Um, you can sort of see how it's shaking out structure wise. Barnes is is clearly the closer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was talking the other day about how he's convinced himself to be more aggressive, uh, to throw more competitive pitches when he's ahead in the count. You know, zero and two, one and two. Uh, you know, because Barnes has always been a guy who has had good stuff. He he hasn't necessarily always looked like a guy who has trusted it completely. Right. Right. Yeah, he's always, uh, you know, somebody who maybe was relying a little too much on on off speed and or trying to fool the hitter. When you know, here's a guy who who can throw mid to high nineties with, you know, it looks like with ease. You know, yes. and and we say that so much about pitchers these days because it's not like they're really humping up to throw. It doesn't look that way. Right. But when you are throwing the way you know you can throw like that, man, you got to trust your stuff because there aren't that many hitters who are able to, uh, you know, make. Uh, damaging contact if you can place that fastball at that at that velocity where you want it. Well, and he's got to wipe out secondary pitch with the curveball. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the pitch that's going to make him a lot of money this offseason. Um, you know, but if he can throw fastballs at the top of the zone on 0-2 and, and maybe get a chase here or there, um, you know, that's that's made a huge difference for him this year. Uh, Darwin's and Hernandez has looked a lot sharper in his last three outings yep. and, and looks like the type of guy who could set up the closer. Um, you know, Josh Taylor... Still struggling to find form that, that he had in 2019. Uh, he had a good outing on Thursday. He threw a scoreless inning uh, against the Twins, and, and maybe that sort of gets him going a little bit. Um, Hirokazu Sawamura, I, I think, has been good mm-hmm. so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, he got nicked for a solo home run by Miguel Sano on Thursday. But but otherwise, uh, his stuff seems to play. He's, he's shown a mid-90s fastball. Uh, he's got pretty good bite on the slider and, and on the splitter, and you know I don't know if he's necessarily going to be a closer or an eighth inning guy in this bullpen, but I certainly think he's he's given himself a role. Um, probably the most impressive guy out of the relievers so far has been Garrett Whitlock. He's looked yeah, super. He, he's been a great story for them, absolutely. Yeah. You know who knows where <clears throat> that goes from here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but Garrett Whitlock in six and a third innings has allowed three hits, no walks, nine strikeouts. He's a Rule Five pick. From the Yankees, somebody who sat out all last year with Tommy John surgery, um, you know, just has been super for them. You you feel really good when he's out there throwing the ball. So I, I think they've done a reasonable job of identifying some pieces and and some spots in the game where they can use some of these guys in the bullpen. Um, but I think that all goes back to the starting pitching. And in, in the last ten games, their starters have given them at least five innings, and they have a three oh six ERA. And I just think that if you sort of have that foundation to build from, it sets up the rest of the game not only for your bullpen but for your offense. Absolutely, you know it's key what you just said too. It, it really helps the bullpen too. If these pitchers are getting deep into the game, you're not overtaxing the bullpen, uh, and they certainly have been. So uh, let's let's flip it to the other side a little bit. And uh, one of the other things you touched upon is the uh, is the sort of uh, reemergence of JD Martinez yeah. in the lineup, who has been fantastic. Yeah. Uh, you know he's uh, hitting well. And averages are not averages are not uh, worth very much these days. Uh, at, well, at at, at uh, thirteen games in, but he's hitting three seventy eight. He's got five home runs. He's got sixteen RBIs. He's just he's basically. Back to being the J.D. Martinez of a couple of years ago, just that anchor in the middle of the lineup that, you know, lets everything else fall into place. I, I think that is the key point, Bill. I think you hit it right on the head there. 
he allows everybody else to just be themselves. Yeah. You don't have no to do No one else extra. is pressing. That's right. right. Yeah. Because JD is there. <clears throat> um, you know, he's going to have guys on base in front of him and knock them in, or he's going to be on base himself. Uh, or if you need a key at bat in a big spot and a big swing, he's going to get a walk or put the bat on the ball and, and do some damage. Um, you know, and I, I just think that, you know, we, we've said it, I don't know how many times on the podcast, but 2017, they were a good team. They were a playoff team. They won the American League East. Mm-hmm. You sign that guy in 2018, all of a sudden, you're world beaters. Right. Uh, you know, and you would think, well, he's just one guy. You know, he's going to have 600 plate appearances a year. How, how much of a difference can it make in a lineup, the dynamics of a lineup, you know, the way that other guys feel about themselves and, and about the lineup and about the continuity there? He makes all the difference in the world. You're, you're looking at a guy right now who has a 1307 OPS um, through 11 games. That's with an 0 for 10. He's out for his last 10, <laughs> right. and he's still he's a, still, you know, yeah, he's still it, right. out of this world. Yeah. Um, you know, had 12 extra base hits in his first eight games. No American League player in history had done that. Yeah. Um, had a three-homer game Sunday at Baltimore, and Nick Pavetta, who, who started that game and, and got the win, um, you know, said afterwards, he, he said, the way the guy hits the ball the other way, um, he said, I've never seen a guy control the bat like that. Mm. You know, someone who still has power through the zone, hitting breaking balls the other way, um, and just looking so under control doing it. Um, you know, the fact that he has five walks already in 50 plate appearances, it says that he's seeing the ball right. really well. So, you know, Martinez just being the linchpin of that lineup, I, I don't think you can overstate how important it is that he's back to who he's supposed to be. You know, um, Doing that, I think, uh, just um, uh, piggybacking what you just said, helped Raphael Devers, I think, get back on track here. Here, you know, he's been he's been uh, showing uh, signs of who of, of who he was a couple of seasons ago. Uh, as of late, um, uh, uh, Bogarts uh, is is doing pretty well. Uh, but the guy that I, I really like watching, and you know, he's got a little sort of uh he plays with kind of a chip on his shoulder and I like that and that and it's both in the outfield and uh and at the plate and that's and that's uh Alex Verdugo who's uh you know who brings that kind of that kind of chippiness I think yep. to the lineup and he's he's one of these guys you're happy he's on your team and not on somebody else's team because he's probably somebody who who you would get annoyed with real quickly if he's if he's on the opposing uh, if he's in the opposing line. Are you trying to say that he's Marshandish? Perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Right. I wasn't thinking of that, but that, yeah, that's yeah. that's probably a pretty apt comparison. Uh, but but N- Nylon esque for a certain generation <laughs> of Bruins fans. Right. Right. Yeah. But but he's a talented guy. He's a very yes. talented player, and and you know he's as you pointed out he's. Uh, you know, sort of the uh, the big return in the in the in the bets trade, uh, and certainly not Mookie Betts, but uh, but a very good player uh, made a great play in the outfield uh, two games ago. I want to say uh, Wednesday to yeah. finish the first game of the double doubleheader, right? Uh, and has been uh, yesterday's game. Uh, uh, he came through with a great at bat, uh, ten pitches, uh, got a single to drive in. Uh, Three runs. It was a three-run three, double. Three-run uh, double, right? Yeah. Three-run double, and they tied the game late in the game. Yep. 
you know, they obviously ended up losing the game. But uh, Verdugo is just, he's been great to watch. He's a fire starter. <clears throat> and, yeah. and no one got to see that last year because they're playing in an empty Fenway Park, in, in empty ballparks. But you got And nobody s- was really watching them on well, TV either because <laughs> they were terrible. Nor so. should you have been. Right. Um, you know, but he is, he is a fire starter. He is a catalyst. Um, and that's something that they've lacked yep. without Mookie Betts. You know, you, you, you look at Betts and you consider just his, his all-around brilliance. Um, you know, the fact that he is so good at the plate, that he can hit 30 home runs, that he can hit well over 300, that he can steal 30 bases, that he's so good defensively yep. in the outfield. His, his overall skill set is just so impressive. It's only matched by guys like Trout and Acuna and Tatis Jr. Yep. and Juan Soto, um, you know, the true elites of the game. Verdugo isn't in that class, but what he can do is he can inspire. Right. And and I think it's his manner, it's the way he goes about his business. I, I think your observations are correct. The effect that he has on the dugout and on the lineup with his energy, mm-hmm. I think that's just as catalytic as some other guys could be, as Betts could be with just his overall play. Yep. Um, you know, you look at Verdugo in the Twins series, you mentioned the diving catch to end game one on Wednesday. It, it looked like the Benintendi catch to end it did. Game yeah, four of the right. Astros series in, in yeah. 2018. Yeah. Uh, you know, coming in, right-handed glove, ball slicing away. Right. Um, you know, and he makes this diving grab coming forward and, and saves the game. Uh, but the at-bat against Taylor Rogers is is why I think you look at Verdugo and you think that, that this is a guy who could be an everyday player and a good one for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the fact that it's left-left, that it's, that it's a, a specialist reliever who comes in, to face a left-handed hitter. Yep. Um, he goes down 0-2. He has a couple really tough takes, discipline takes around the strike zone. There's a fastball away. There's a fastball down. He spits on both of them. He fouls off a couple sliders. And then he gets a fastball away, and he shoots it to the opposite field. He's an all-fields hitter, yep. which makes him difficult to work against in, in situations like that. Um, you know, He gets to second base, and he's screaming at the dugout. And the dugout's screaming back yeah. at him. Yeah. And that was a game that Boston's down three to nothing. Michael Pineda dominated them through seven innings. Yeah, he looked good. They really had nothing going. I think they had two hits through the first seven innings. Um, and all of a sudden, they were alive. And, and I think that, you know, aside from the fact that they were just so poor last year and, and that, you know, they really weren't good enough to contend, they lacked that sort of edginess, that sort of chippiness, mm. um, that sort of resilience that good teams have. I, I think you saw them win some games in 2018 where you looked and said, oh, how did they do that? You know, these right. guys just don't seem to give up right. ever. Um, if we're seeing early signs of that from this 2021 group, that's a really, really good thing to have going forward. Well, you know, we haven't seen that in so long with the Red Sox. It seemed for, like forever. Uh, obviously, we saw that a lot in 18. You know, we... we 19, they had a decent year, but it was kind of a letdown from what they what they did in, in uh, the previous season, and obviously last year was terrible. It, it's weird, Bill, because they are a they're an exciting team to watch, uh, and they do kind of have a chippiness or scrappiness that you admire right now. But there are some big time players on that team too that you wouldn't consider chippy or, or scrappy. I mean, you know, you don't consider JD Martinez a scrappy player. He's just an elite hitter, and I'm not sure that I would. Uh, 
consider uh, Bogarts a scrappy player. He's just a high, high performing, consistently high performing uh, batter. Uh, even Devers, but you know, with Verdugo, he does kind of embody that uh, that kind of old dirt dog. Uh, Trot Nixon, Pedroia kind of sensibility that that fans around here have loved, and uh, it's one of the reasons why they're fun to watch. That know? that was exactly the term that popped into my head when, when you were getting into that description. The dirt dog, yeah, right. We the haven't we, we haven't seen that in a little while. No, right? and and those are guys. Those are the guys that in this market you always gravitate to. Sure. Uh, I mean, you know, we're looking at someone like uh, Julian Edelman who retired earlier this week with mm. the Patriots. Yeah. Uh, you know, twelve seasons in New England. You look at what he did in the postseason specifically. You know, he's second all time to Jerry Rice in, in postseason receptions. Um, but Julian Edelman looks more like the mascot. Yeah, to look at like him, you wouldn't. Famer. No, you wouldn't think of him as being one of the elite wide receivers in the NFL. Absolutely it's not. Seventh round pick, a college quarterback. Right. Um, you know, I think when he retired, there were ten players left from his draft class in the league. Hmm. Wow. He shouldn't have played twelve plays in the <laughs> NFL, let alone twelve years. Yeah. Um, considering that he was a seventh round guy who's changed positions, who's coming out of Kent State. There's yeah. no pedigree there whatsoever. No. Uh, you know, Dustin Pedroia was, was a high draft pick. Um, but if you look at him on paper and you see him physically, he, he's nobody's idea of a world beater. Right. Um, you know, he's not a guy who you're going to look at and say, well, he's going to be the heart and soul of some team for 15 years and win multiple championships. No, in fact, when he first debuted and he kind of got off to a slow start, there were a lot of people just writing him off. They're like, who's this little guy? You know, this is... You know he's not. You know he's not what he's uh, built up to be, and didn't take him long to change mind. Change no, people's minds. and and we love those guys because we could see ourselves in them. You know, <laughs> right. we, we look at someone like J.D. Martinez, and he's six three, and he's strong, right? And he hits the ball four hundred fifty feet, and he looks so easy doing it. You know, no one in their right mind could look and say, "Oh, I could be J.D. Martinez, <laughs> right. you know, or Tom you know, Brady, right. or right. right? You know, right. or Tom Brady, or Jason Tatum. You know, these people are just so different." from the average guy walking around on the street. Sure. Um, you know, but you look at somebody like Verdugo, who's sort of average size. Yeah. You know, who's sort of like an average-looking guy. It doesn't look like he runs overly fast. He, he's not, you know, hitting 50 home runs a year. Um, you know, it's sort of like, eh, he's just you know, kind of an everyday guy. He's just kind of out there scrapping it out. But you watch him play on a night-in and night-out basis, and you see the way that he applies himself, um, the way that he is good. Uh, and above average, multiple areas of the game yeah. that he is so well rounded, um, and you you sort of continue to peek inside that window, and you think, yeah, this guy's a really good player. Yeah, and and you can't have enough really good players like that. No, fans are definitely drawn to that. I mean, you know, JD Martinez is kind of like in the league of maybe not quite as good as Manny Ramirez, and but but these elite players that you just look at and expect them to be they're, they're savants. They right. They they are so good at what they do that there's a certain expectation that even when they do it, you're not you're not surprised by it, right? David Ortiz. Right, it's right. like here's the big guy. Right, you know, six four. He's doing big what he's presence, He's doing what he's supposed to be outsized doing. Outsized personality, right. and you think, of course, he's going to hit a home run right. in the World Series. Like that's who he is. But when Pedroia gets up there and and puts on one of his you know so called laser shows, that's right, and hits that's a right. and hits a screaming line drive home run, you know, we love it because no one really you don't look at him and expect that visually. It does not compute. Right. So uh, you know, but it's uh, all in all, so far, again, thirteen games in, fun to watch, much much better than what we saw last year, and um, 
you know, I think I think that's that goes a long way to to kind of getting us back to some sense of normalcy. And I, I, I want to touch on that a little bit. I know there's a few other things we want to talk about, but sure. Uh, so you know, we're still at the uh, we're still at the 12 percent mark in terms of fans in Fenway Park, and it's still you know whatever it is 40. 4,500 fans or so. Um, so, Bill, with the with news that the vaccine is rolling out, you know, and we're 3 million-plus vaccinations a day, uh, I'm wondering what your take and prediction is as we get deeper into the summer in terms of, you know, fans in the stands. Uh, how long is, is it going to be before we get to, or, or, or are we going to get to full capacity at Fenway Park this season, or how close do you think we're going to get there? Um, well, I mean, obviously all that's going to be decided by local and state government in, in Massachusetts. Uh, mm-hmm. The Red Sox have, have worked closely. Um, you know, the former Mayor Walsh and, and obviously Governor Baker, they, they've worked closely uh, with their offices. They're, they're working with Mayor Janney at, at this point as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and they're going to be guided by them and, and given allowances by them, whatever it may be. Um, you know, I, I just look at I look at vaccines being what they are. And, you know, states are tracking the percentage of residents that are vaccinated, you know, whether it's one shot, two shots fully, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I just think that capacity guidelines are, are going to be a function of your vaccination percentage. Um, you know, you, you look at what's going on in, in certain places, whether it's certain states or certain countries like Israel at this point. Right. Um, you know, a vast majority of the Israeli population at this point is vaccinated uh, and, and their health officials uh, are telling government leaders we can pretty much safely reopen just about anything we want to. Well, that's the goal, you know, and we all kind of held out the vaccine as being the savior here. And I think eventually, as more and more Americans are getting vaccinated, it's going to turn into that. Now, I don't know that that means we immediately open the floodgates and everyone comes back in. But I do think that we're going to start seeing ramping up of of uh, uh, allowable crowd sizes. Yes. Uh, and, you know, the, at the rate it's going, I, I'm going to sort of predict that most people who want a vaccine will will have one probably by august 1st or so you know not not the kids i mean i i know that that's that's a different population but it seems to me that uh with rhode island and massachusetts uh you know kind of rolling out vaccines beginning next week to anyone 16 and over right uh it's going to take a while because there's going to be a bottleneck and all that but i would say in the next uh you know four months or so, most of us who want to get vaccines will be able to do so. Uh, so I, I'm really hopeful that by late summer, if it's not full capacity, it's probably going to be, I'm going to say, 50 to 75 percent capacity. I mean, they may still want to kind of, you know, keep people distanced to some degree. And I would think that mask wearing is still going to be uh, either a mandate or strongly encouraged by then. Right. But uh, it, it, boy, it's it's great to think of because, you know, look, uh, we've lost 560,000 Americans, and that's that's uh, the worst toll of all. Right. Uh, and there is no, uh, there's really no um, excusing that. But uh, there, it, there's also been a huge toll on the economy and, and restaurants and lots of other businesses. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully the vaccine does uh, continue to roll out without much of a hitch, and, and we get ourselves back to what we remember our society being a couple of seasons ago. No, I, I think like everything else, it's just going to be phased in, in terms of you know how many fans can return to Fenway Park. Right now they're at 12%. Um, the Red Sox have had a year 
to plan for this. And, and so yeah. you know that they have guidelines in place, whether it's to go to 25% or 30% or 40%, mm-hmm. whatever it may be. And, and I think that the state of Massachusetts will give them phased approval over time, depending on the vaccination numbers. You know, they'll let them go to a quarter and then maybe to 40% and yeah. maybe to 60% at some point. Um, you know, I certainly think that, that they will encourage mask wearing uh, if you're not having a beer or a hot dog. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's um, probably going to spike the sales of beer and hot dogs. So well, people don't need to sit there with their masks on. I, you know, and, I and, can't blame them. And don't overlook that in terms of some sort of economic driver. Uh, yeah. You know, because as you mentioned, um, you know, the Red Sox, the Celtics, the Bruins, uh, the Patriots have, have all been significantly hurt by this financially. Sure. Um, you know, if 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 they happen to institute a mask mandate in their stadiums and, and at TD Garden, uh, unless you are consuming concessions, um, I know a lot of folks, you know, for, for good and for bad, you know, are just done with the masks. They don't want to wear them anymore. Um, they're tired of wearing them. They have COVID fatigue. I, I understand it. Sure. Uh, you know, I also sit here in the studio with you, and we are both wearing masks uh, because neither one of us are vaccinated. And, you know, we actually um, would like to do our part in this, you know, not only keeping ourselves healthy, but reducing our spread to, you know, the friends we might see, the family we might see, um, you know, who aren't vaccinated yet. So I certainly think that, that public health will remain the number one guide here. Um you know, but as someone who covers college basketball as well, I could see full buildings in November. I, that, I could. that would be great. That, that that would be you know. Hopefully, we we as a society get there in terms of our vaccination rates. I think we will. You know, masks on. I yeah, think yeah, potentially. You know, I have to be honest. We've been doing the mask thing so a year now. It's just kind of become second nature. You know, I remember. You know, I'm sure a lot of people can can uh, can relate to this. You know, the first few months of mask wearing, um, you know, I, I would, if I had to go to a store or something, invariably I would drive to the store. You know, I'd be alone in the car, so I would not be wearing a mask. Put the car in park, shut it off, get out, start walking to the, and then, you know, get 10 feet to the door and say, oh, crap. <laughs> you know, and there's the mask hanging on my mirror or my shift or walking. Now it's just, it's. I never forget it anymore. It's just that, right. you know, we, we, we know we, we have to wear it. And, and honestly, if, if the, the price of getting our society back open and getting uh, people back into restaurants and getting people back into sports stadiums and arenas and all that is wearing a mask, you know, I'd rather not, but it, it's, it's not a big burden to me. So I, I'm fine with it. No, it's really, it's not, you know, for how much it's portrayed as, as some huge infringement on your personal freedoms. It's not. You know, I think there are people who have legitimate maybe health concerns or they can't they can't breathe as well with a mask on. And, I, and I'm sensitive to that. But I, I, you know, I think there are also freedoms that, that you know, um, that uh, we should. One of my freedoms is to be able to go somewhere and 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 not uh, be exposed to COVID. And if that means you, you can put a mask on to help reduce that, you know, and, and I'm sorry, I don't buy this. Well, then stay home. No, I'm not going to stay home. No. No, I'm not going to stay home. I, I want to go out, and you know, if the if the price is you putting a mask on, put a damn mask on. You know. So. Yeah. When when your personal liberty infringes on my health, right? It's I over. <laughs> right. Anyway. No. No good. Yeah. So anyway, uh, we'll get off our soapbox now, Bill, and, and get back to baseball here. And uh, so as I was um, watching uh, 
the Red Sox over the last couple of weeks and seeing these ridiculous averages. Obviously, it's early in the season, <laughs> right. you know. Right. And I think last week there was like two team, two players hitting over four hundred. It got me thinking about hitting uh, cur- four hundred. Currently, currently zero. Currently, right. right? Yeah. So that was over. Yeah, it's That's over, over now <laughs> after thirteen games. <laughs> Although I think JD Martinez is still like around even at zero for ten is hitting like three seventy five. He's, he's like three seventy eight. Right. Bogarts is three seventy. <laughs> right. uh, right. You know, and they could be four hundred with a four for four game in the yeah. next. But um, so it got me thinking because uh, it has been exactly 80 years since someone has hit 400 for the season. And that someone was, of course, the Red Sox's own uh, Ted Williams, who hit 406 in 1941. Yeah. So, you know, it got me thinking. And and every now and then I think about this. Why hasn't anyone done it? Why hasn't anyone been able to hit 400 for the season? And obviously there are some reasons and we'll start talking about it. But. You know, it's still because when you look at Wikipedia and the list of people who've hit 400, there was a lot of them up until that year, and then it stopped. And obviously, the the game has changed a lot. And for me, the biggest reason is the specialty of uh, uh, relief pitchers. Yes. You know, back in Ted Williams' day, you could see that same pitcher five times in the course of a game, and you know, because just the strategy of baseball was different. Right. Uh, but still, it's still kind of uh, remarkable that it has been 80 years. And we've had some memorable uh, ch- 400 chases over the years. And, and we were just talking about some of them before we started recording. But what's your take on it? Why, why hasn't anyone really uh, hasn't been able to do it or really come? I, I mean, I guess we had a couple of George Brett and John Olerud, as you mentioned, were, were in the hunt late in the season. Tony di- Gwynn. Different, Tony Gwynn in the strike season. But, you know, that's like three or four guys over the course of 80 years that we right. can think about, you know, and say, oh, they, they got close. So why not? Why is 400 the, the magic number that nobody can get to anymore? Well, it's, it's such a multi-layered answer, as, as you alluded to. Um, you know, the, the first thing I would say is that, you know, consider what baseball was in 1941 um, and, and consider the game as it was in 1941. It was not an integrated game. Yeah. There were no black players. There were no Hispanic players. Um, it was a white game. And, and so the game itself did not have the best talent, um, You know, did not have the best players available, the best pitchers available. Right, not all of the best players. Not I mean, they, obviously they had some great players. but yeah, Of course. But there were obviously many but not great players who were excluded. That's right. So, <clears throat> you know, you consider that the talent pool was cynically, artificially, more shallow yep. than it could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, pitching usage certainly, as you alluded to. Um, you know, there were no lefty specialists. Uh, teams didn't go to the bullpen. You know, starters were routinely over three hundred innings. Yeah, I mean, you pitched until basically you couldn't pitch anymore, and you know, if you were too tired, and then they would bring somebody else in, or if you were really getting hammered, they would bring some. But it wasn't a designed strategy. No, no, you didn't have you didn't have Tony Fossas to come in. You didn't yeah. have Mike Myers to come in. Right to face Ted Williams in the seventh inning uh, in a critical spot where there might have been a couple guys on. Andrew Miller. Andrew Miller yeah. is another really good one. Yeah. Um, you know, just the physics of baseball itself, there were certain pitches thrown now that didn't exist in 1941. Yeah, that's a good point. Th- th- right. There, there's a lot more pitchers t- pitches today than there were back then. You, right? you didn't see guys throwing a split-fingered fastball. You didn't see guys throwing cut fastballs like they do now. Right. Um, you know, sliders like they do now. That You know, everything is just so hard and late 
you know, the movement is the last 10, 15 feet as it approaches the plate, uh, which makes it much harder to hit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just, just the actual physics of pitching. Um, you know, pitchers are so much harder to hit now than they used to be. Mm. Um, you know, it was much more conventional. It was fastball, curveball, occasional changeup. Um, you know, and, and the 40s were, were sort of the point where they started to get out of the widespread doctoring the baseball. <laughs> right. uh, they were much more diligent in terms of spitballs, yeah. in terms of, uh, you know, some old infields in the 1900s. Instead of water, they used to use like a low-grade oil to keep the dust down. Yeah. That oil used to get on the baseball. Yeah. Uh, some pitchers used to throw what they call a shine ball, um, you know, which, which sort of did some odd things on the way to the plate. Not some unnatural things. Um, right? You know, that sort of started to get weeded out of the game a little bit. You yeah. know, there were still some guys who famously fooled with the ball, whether it was Whitey Ford. He had a little ring on, on his glove finger, right. and he used to cut it every once in a while. Right. Um, you know, Gaylord Perry obviously sure. uh, you know, had a lifesaver, and, and it was a little sticky, and he would spit on his hand and rub up the ball. And, yeah. Uh, you know, people didn't catch on until he was done. Right. Um, you know, the basically real life version of, of Ed Harris from Major League. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, throwing the Vaseline ball. Yeah. But um, you know, certainly the the physics of pitching it was different. Um, you know, I also think Bill. You know, one of the biggest things there is you know the fact that it is socially acceptable now to strike out. A <laughs> hundred times in a given year, a hundred fifty right. times. The, the in a given approach year. to hitting has changed. It was, as, as you had said, uh, it's not the sin it was one, it once was. No, and and if you look back at Ted Williams in his four oh six year, mm-hmm. um, you know he was far ahead of the curve in terms of on base percentage and, right. and getting on base by walking. Uh, he walked one hundred forty seven times that year. He only had twenty seven strikeouts. Amazing. So you consider all season. I mean, the season was a little shorter, it was 154 games, I believe, but still, 27 strikeouts over the course of a season. I mean, we're going to have players on the Red Sox who we're going to hit that by, you know, by, by end the of end of April. Yeah, but or, or you by know, first week of May. Yeah, probably whatever yeah. it may be. Yeah, um, you know, that's 27 strikeouts in about 600 plate appearances. Um, there was just much more of an emphasis at the time on putting the ball in play. Yeah. Uh, you know, and especially when you got to two strikes. Uh, now, the hitting philosophy being what it is, that emphasis has shifted to doing damage. Right. Extra base hits, home runs, regardless of the count. Keep your A swing. doesn't matter if you strike out. It's just another out. Yeah, and, and that philosophy, you know, uh, is, is a m- much r- more recent development. I mean, even when I was in Little League, and I'm sure you can remember too, you know, if you got two strikes on you, you'd have the coach tell you, know, okay, choke up and, get the, up. Shorten up and get the bat on the ball and stuff. And obviously now, the... The uh, the approach is, hey, you know, you still get your pitch, man. You know, you you try and launch it. It doesn't matter if it's on t- with two strikes on you or no strikes on you. So, you know, you you consider the last full season played in the majors uh, in 2019. Tim Anderson led the league in hitting the, the shortstop for the White Sox, who yep. was a very good player. Um, he hit 335. He struck out 109 times. You know, that's in 162 games. Yeah. Um, so a considerable number. Sure. Um, the last three guys who really bid for 400, mm-hmm. uh, Tony Gwynn was the most recent and, and probably was considered the most threatening, just because he was such a savant at the plate. Right, right. Um, not, you know, not, not a power hitter, but just a pure hitter. who He could use the whole field, you know, got bat on the ball a lot. You, you couldn't know. speed him up. He could right. hit lefties. He could hit righties. 
Um, you know, he could go the other way. He he was a genius with the bat in his hands. And that was the strike year. The strike year in 1994. He right. was hitting 394 through 110 games. He only had 19 strikeouts wow. that season. Yeah. So the ball was in play a consistently. Sure. Um, you know, coming off his bat. Olerud in 1993, he was on those great Blue Jay teams that went back to back in the World Series. He was hitting 400 on August 2nd. Wow. Uh, you know, he was hitting in the 390s deep into August, faded down the stretch. And, and I think, you know, a big part of that, too, and, and we see it with the Joe DiMaggio hitting streak, is the pressure that comes in. Um, you know, if you're hitting 390 into August, right. uh, you know, the attention that you're going to receive, you know, hey, this guy's bidding for 400. Right. It hasn't happened in 80 years. Um, you know, my goodness, we, we, it, this is a big story. And, and that wears on you. If you think back to what Roger Maris went through when he broke Babe Ruth's home run record, sure. um, you know, the stories that came out later about how he had ulcers and his hair was falling out and, you know, he was staying in hotels under assumed names because he's getting phone calls from people. Getting all these threats. Seem break right. the record. Right. Um, you know, just that, that pressure, that scrutiny yeah. makes it very difficult to hit. Um, you know, another guy who, who gave it a good bid was George Brett in 1980, yeah. who was a terrific player, uh, you know, obviously a Hall of Famer. Yeah. Hit 390, 117 games. He struck out 22 times. Right. Wow. So, so you're just talking about guys who have such incredible bat control at the plate, um, you know, and who used approaches that, that really you don't see very often now you you're going to see some guys who walk more than they strike out in a given year um you know guys like mike trout guys like joey Votto, mm. uh, alex bregman has done it in recent seasons guys who have really good control of the strike zone um but they're still striking out 80 90 100 times it's just that their walk numbers are so high yeah um you know it's it's just a completely different philosophy in terms of hitting uh, in terms of talent pool, in terms of pitcher usage, in terms of actual pitches that they're seeing, it's just so many factors that come together um, that make hitting really darn hard. It's it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, and this is I, I think that this is one of those records that I don't know that we'll ever see broken because of just the change of ba- uh, the change in, in uh, strategy of baseball this is one of those to me and and you know we it's been 80 years so you would think if it was gonna break it happen it would have happened uh, it, I don't know that we're ever gonna see a, a player hit 400 again because of all of these things that we talked about uh, it's one of those uh, you know holy grails of, of baseball records of, of sports records really no no question yeah. it, it is it is a magical number. Um, you know, a number that, that pretty much that, that's one of those things that if you're a baseball fan, you know. Like there, there are certain absolutes in baseball. You, you know, you know, last time somebody hit 400, you know the DiMaggio hitting streak was 56 games. Yeah. Um, you know, you might know that Cy Young won 511 games. You know, just there, <laughs> right. there are baseball is such a sport defined by numbers over the course of years, over the course of careers. Mm-hmm. It, it is sort of part of the romance of the game. And, and there are certain numbers that stand above all others. Yep. And, and hitting 400, Ted Williams hitting 406 in 1941, is, is on that very short list 
of those very special numbers yeah. in the game. Yeah, and adding to that leg to that legend, of course, of the way he did it came down to the last yes. day of the season. Statistically, he if he didn't play, he would have had four hundred because he was at you know three nine five five yes, or something. Three nine nine five. Yeah, that's it. Uh, but he said no, I'm playing, and it was a doubleheader, and he got like six hits, and and uh, you know got it legitimately, so to speak. So yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, uh, it's it's uh, it, it is really one of those things that uh, uh, it's it's you know I don't think it's ever going to be matched. Uh, it was a it was a huge. It, it, there's there's always this huge interest if somebody comes close to it, you know. And you're right, all of a sudden they're in the glare, they're in the spotlight, and that probably wasn't quite that. I mean, I'm sure Ted Williams. You know, was in the glare and the spotlight, but the glare and the spotlight in 1941 was much different than it is today. Yeah, and you know, there were players who had done it in in you know very recently up to that point. So it wasn't like people were waiting, you know, 25, 30, 40, 80 years. That's right. You know, whereas it is now. So, uh, but yeah, it just you know it struck me the other day. Here we are, 80 years removed, and and still no one has been able to touch that record. Uh, so there was something else that came up this week in, in uh, the world of baseball that is worth our uh, time for a few minutes here at least, and that's Jackie Robinson Day was this week in baseball to commemorate uh, him breaking in, breaking the color barrier with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Um, and I was surprised to read, Bill, that the participation among uh, uh, African Americans in Major League Baseball is as low as it is. It's under 8%, and, and you know I figured it was somewhere around 10 but... Uh, and the Red Sox don't have don't have any African Americans on their team. Uh, I think their last player uh, was Jackie Bradley Jr., who correct was uh, you know free agent signed with Milwaukee in the off season. So uh, uh, still a very diverse team, but uh, kind of um, you know it kind of stands out that they don't have a an African American player. No, it, it is. Uh, you know, and, and the Red Sox obviously have, have a terrible history when it comes to race uh, <clears throat> on their roster. Uh, the last team to integrate in the American League, um, you know, integrated three years after Jackie Robinson retired. Uh, you know, yeah. Tom Yawkey was a, a racist. Um, you know, he, he gave sham tryouts to Robinson and, and Willie Mays and uh, you know, ultimately had no intention of signing them whatsoever. Um, you know, and it, it's just, it's a very sad chapter of Boston's history. It's it's still one that's ongoing now. Um, you know, there is a very tenuous um, circumstance in, in the city when it comes to race relations still yeah. uh, in yeah. 2021. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, but just, you, you look at the percentage of black players in the league and it, it's under 8%. Um, you know, and you consider where that was maybe in the post-Robinson generation. That first generation of kids yeah. after the 40s and the 50s whose fathers might have looked at Jackie Robinson and said, this is a hero. Right. This can, is who I want you my can son actually play Major League Baseball. to be. Right. Um, you know, and you're, you're up over 20% right. at some point in the 60s and the 70s, yeah. you know, into the 80s. And, and you think about all the great black players in the game who followed Jackie Robinson and, and especially as you get into you know the 60s and into the 70s sure. and, and yeah. sort of they're sort of like his children in that way in baseball right um, you know that is his legacy um, you know and you you think you know we go back to Jackie Robinson Day which which celebrates a day that he debuted with the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947 uh, April 15th mm-hmm. uh, you considered just you know what he must have felt what he must have experienced, um, the weight that he was carrying, you yeah. know, he's he's essentially, you know, if he fails, you know, he's not failing for himself. He's failing 
sure. on behalf of black there, folks there, everywhere. There were a lot of people at the time that were waiting for him to fail. It's you know just that that burden and how well he handled it, how well he played, um, you know how professional <clears throat> he was uh, in the face of of you know scores and scores of letters and threats and um, you know all sorts of adversity that he had to face. Right. Um, you know just to play the game. Uh, you know, it, it, it's it's remarkable. He he's one of the most remarkable figures in baseball history. Uh, you know, Alex Cora spoke a little bit about it um, prior to Thursday's game. He said, "Without Jackie Robinson, there's no Roberto Clemente," mm-hmm. and and obviously that you know was one of Alex Cora's heroes growing yeah. up was Roberto Clemente. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, considering what he did for Hispanic players uh, breaking into the league. Um, you know, and and just those pioneers in baseball, I, I think. You know, we sit here as two white guys, you know, from suburban New England places. Yeah. We see white guys do everything. We've seen them be president. We've yeah. seen them, um, you know, television and starring roles. We've seen them be great athletes. Um, you know, that's always possible for us because we see it. You go back to the 40s, and if you're a black kid who's playing baseball, you don't see anyone in the major leagues who looks like you. Yeah. You know, it's not possible. At that point, um, you know, so I think just Robinson, his legacy, um, the fact that he did it the way he did, um, you know, the fact that he, that he is rightly celebrated league wide, mm-hmm. um, you know, commemorating his debut in, in Brooklyn. It, it's it's something that you should look back on and, and think about and, and consider, you know, just the impact that he had. Absolutely, you know, and the other the other sort of uh, factor here, and sort of the real world uh, um, of sports uh, over the last uh, fifty years or so is that, you know, back in the day of Jackie Robinson, um, uh, you know, professional football and professional basketball were not nearly of the same stature that they are now. And no. cl- clearly baseball was the king of team sports then. Yes. Uh, y- you know, uh, whereas uh, over the years we've seen the, the, the emergence of the NFL really as, as the main pastime in, in, in this country. And obviously the NBA has grown to, into this international uh, sort of juggernaut of a sports league. And so we, we're certainly seeing lots of African-American players in those, in those leagues uh, and lesser, less in baseball. Uh, uh, because I think, you know, back uh, in the 40s or 50s, if you were a great athlete, you were kind of steered toward baseball because that was sort of the marquee sport and the marquee game where as time went on, you know, and the, the rise of ba- uh, basketball and football, you know, if you're a great player in high school, you know, football might, might be more uh, attractive to you or a basketball might be more attractive. Particularly, you know, the rise of a baseball player is a long road. You know, you get you know, you try to get drafted, and then you get onto a, a, a minor league system, and it, you know, it's could be three, four years or more before if you even get to the big leagues. Whereas in those other sports, it's it's uh, you come out of the draft, and you, chances are you've got a, a shorter path to, to the to the major, so to speak. You know, there's also a question of access, and, and the players' alliance is is trying to address this in Major League Baseball. Um, you know, the fact that if if you're playing baseball as a teenager. Um, the cost of travel baseball, the, the cost of exposure at the highest level, uh, you know, to develop yourself at the highest level. Um, you know, the fact that fully funded baseball programs in Division One in the NCAA only have a certain number of scholarships. Right. 
whereas basketball programs and football programs have more. Mm-hmm. And so you can use those two sports a little more ably to advance yourself through education. Sure. Um, you know, football especially, 85 scholarships in Division I. Uh, you know, the FCS level, which is what Rhode Island and, and Brown and Bryant play in, you're, you're mm-hmm. upwards of 60 scholarships. Yeah. Um, you know, baseball, a fully funded program, is far less. Yeah. Uh, you know, so if you're considering just a, using athletics to advance your life, um, you know, baseball is a lesser alternative in that way. Um, you know, so I think I think access has a, a huge hand to play sure. in that as well. Um, you know, and I just I look at the state of the game now. There are great players. Um, you know, from various different places well, what's various I, what's ironic is that the, the Red Sox are a very diverse team yes uh, they just they don't happen to have an African American player on the team right now which is glaring because they're I think one of I don't know three or four uh, teams in the majors that don't have that there aren't many but they still are very diverse and they have Asian players and lots of players from uh, various Latin American countries Puerto Rico obviously they have uh, Americans on the team uh, but yeah, it's just it, it's glaring that they don't have a black player, and, and an American so, black. And so it is important that you know there is that outreach by players in the game, by the game itself. Um, you know there is a genuine good faith effort to to try and make the game more accessible to everybody. Yeah. Um, you know to not just assume that black kids in American cities would rather play basketball than play football. Right. You know, give them the options. Right. Give them the means to play baseball if they would like to play baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, give them the same opportunity that everybody else has, and and make sure that that opportunity is provided. You know, everywhere. Uh, grow the game as best you can. Sure. Uh, I think, you know, baseball has a responsibility to do that. I, I think, you know, there are several players. Um, you know, CC Sabathia has been one of them. Um, you know, I know several players donated uh, their game checks from April fifteenth to the Players Alliance. Um, you know, David Price was among them. Yep. Uh, David Price does not exactly make a pittance per game. <laughs> um, you know, that's a significant amount of money. Yep. Uh, Mookie Betts did the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jackie Bradley Jr. did the same. Um, you know, so players are, you know, and, and considering what's happened uh, in the country over the last year, the push for social justice and, and racial equality, the fact that these conversations are happening more publicly, more often, um, you know, it's just that much more important that Major League Baseball supports those initiatives, that the players feel like their voices are heard, yep. um, you know, that they feel like there is progress being made in that way. Uh, so let us uh, take a look ahead here a little bit. Uh, so the Red Sox are embarking upon what I believe I read in your column was the longest homestand of the season. Yes. Uh, and they are starting, well, if they actually get to play tonight, but they are starting this weekend anyway against the Chicago White Sox. And this is the weekend where the Red Sox are going to wear those uh, UCLA-like uniforms, I believe. Uh, uh, you mean the Boston Marathon? That's what I mean, right? The, Boston, the, the yellow and blue, right? Uh, yes. And uh, obviously the Patriots Day game is on Monday at 11 o'clock or 11.10 a.m. as well. So it's a, you know, usually a, a, a fun time in the city. Obviously the marathon isn't being run uh, this Monday. Uh, the way it normally is, but uh, Bill, it's uh, so they they got the White Sox coming in. They've got the blue, and I'm interested to see the Blue Jays. You know, where it's, you know, mm. is, is this the team that finally is going to get over the hump? Or it's, uh, so we'll see the Blue Jays on uh, Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, I, I guess that's it. It's just a short series, and then the Mariners come in 
for the following weekend. So right. uh, a lot of a lot of home dates at Fenway here over the next uh, ten days or so. Yeah, you know, Friday. I mean, we we talked about the weather to start off. It doesn't look very good. Um, yeah. you, you wonder how they reschedule. I doubt that they would want to play a doubleheader on Sunday. And then play the morning game on right, Monday. Right, you had point that out, and that's that's a good point. Yeah, you don't want to play two games and then have to get be, be back in the park at uh, whatever it is, 9 a.m. That's yeah. really tough. Um, this is the only time the White Sox come to Boston this year, so you, you would have to think that they're going to do everything they can to, to get these games in. And, and if that means playing a doubleheader on Saturday, I, I think you know they would be open to that. Yep. Um, you know, I consider what the Red Sox would do in terms of their pitching coming up. Uh, because they are supposed to play 10 straight. They don't have a day off until April 26th. Yep. Um, you figure Tanner Houck is going to figure, figure well, into that in some way? Whether they play today or not, uh, yeah. I think we would expect to see Tanner Houck on Saturday. Um, if they were to have played today, they were not going to have a starter for Saturday. Houck can be recalled mm-hmm. from the alternate side on Saturday. That's the first day he's eligible. Right. Um, if you end up raining this game out on Friday, you have a doubleheader on Saturday or Sunday, you're going to need a starter for one of those games. And, yep. and so it would stand to reason that Hauk would be recalled. So I would expect that you're going to see him start at least one of these games this weekend. Right. Um, you know, the White Sox are a very interesting team, obviously, with Tony LaRusa coming back. Um, you know, he was a senior advisor with the Red Sox uh, during that 18 championship season. Right. Um, you know, the White Sox have a very interesting roster. Uh, with some really good players, Jose Abreu, uh, Jose Abreu was the AL MVP yep. last year in a shortened season. Uh, Carlos Rodon threw a no hitter earlier this week. Right, um, you know he he would probably start. I think he lines up for the Sunday game. Um, you know Sunday or Monday, yep. one of those two. Um, you know so they they have they have. Uh, they were sort of one of the trendy picks to, to break right. through this year. Right. Uh, you lose Luis Robert to a torn pectoral muscle late in spring training. He's going to be out four to five months. That's a big loss yeah. for them. Yeah. But you still have you guys still like have Abreu, Abreu right. Anderson, yep. Yoan Moncada. Um, oh, old friend. Old friend yeah. Yoan Moncada. Um, you know, Lucas Giolito is going to pitch in that series. Yeah. He's very good. Um, you know, so a lot of high-end talent with the White Sox. You wonder how they shake out. In the Central, the the Twins have kind of been the boss there for a couple of years right. now, and the Red Sox just handled the Twins. Yeah, they did very well. Uh, you know, almost almost swept them in fact in four games. You know, so that's that's an interesting series. Uh, Toronto with with the young kids that they brought through in that lineup. Um, you know, those guys can slug. Yep. You could run into two days where if you don't pitch well, they're going to beat you. Uh, yeah. You know, because that lineup is 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 threatening. It can be potent. Uh, and then Seattle coming in for four. Uh, you know, the only time that Seattle will visit this year. Uh, generally, you look at the Mariners and say they're probably not going to contend with with Houston and the Angels and um, you know Oakland at the top of the AL West. But um, you know, you're curious. You're curious how Boston continues this. You're yep. curious which team they are. Was it the team that lost the first three games or the team that won the next nine? <laughs> right. Um, you know, I certainly know how I feel. I think they're probably closer to that second group. I had them for 85 wins at the start of the year, so I felt like they'd be moderately successful. Right. Um, you know, I did not think that they were going to come out and go 70 and 90. Uh, you know, so I'm interested to see just based on the different caliber of opponents 
during this homestand where sure. they shake out at the end. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we're still trying to get a measure of this team against uh, uh, better competition. I'm with you. I, I'm more encouraged, uh, obviously. I, I, uh, I also think that they're going to be just over five. At least my, my pick was just over 500. They may surprise us. They, they may do a little better than that. But uh, So, Bill, let's see what happens uh, this weekend. Hopefully, uh, you know, if the Red Sox do decide to uh, bang the game, as we, as we say, or cancel the game, they do it on the earlier side rather than the late side so people aren't driving up. Uh, in the afternoon, uh, such as sports writers who live in Rhode Island, <laughs> and then uh, get to Waltham and decide, uh, you know, oh, geez, I don't have to go. Uh, but anyway, uh, we will uh, see what the what the weekend brings us here, Bill, and see where the Red Sox stand a week from now, and we will do this again then. Thanks, Bill.